In Gospel Conversations, we advocate what we like to call creation theology. And this, this creation theology will lay the foundation for our upcoming series on design and theology, which Rick Watts is going to lead for us. Since this is such an important theme for us in Gospel Conversations, I've decided to give this talk as, as a summary of our views on what this phrase means. I mean, the, the, the value of this is it'll, it will definitely give a context for Rick's talks, um, but it also serves as an orientation or an introduction to some of the other talks we've got um, in Gospel Conversations. It's a big topic and it's a relevant topic. Um, I want to approach it through four steps. The first step I'll talk about is what do we mean by that phrase? And I'm going to advance that explanation by contrasting it with redemption theology. Having explained what um, are the coordinates and cause of these two ways of looking at the gospel, we'll then move on to why. Why does this emphasis upon creation matter today? Because I think it really does matter today. Um, I'm not of the view that there's a universally right way of framing the gospel. Um, I am of the view that each generation requires new and appropriate framings of the gospel and that the Holy Spirit coordinates this. And so the great eras of history um, where new frameworks for the gospel have occurred, I think are best understood by putting them into context. For instance, I am and will be in this talk somewhat critical of the Reformation uh, gospel. Um, that's not to say that I think it was wrong. I think it was very appropriate for its time. What I think is wrong is to universalize it and lift it up and really co codify it or centralize it as the only way of understanding the gospel. I think it is a way of framing the gospel that is demonstrably limited for our day and age. So having done the what and the why, I then want to move on to the so what of the creation gospel, because I think the creation gospel opens up um, new spaces for us as Christians, new battlegrounds, almost a new curriculum. If you are building a Bible college firmly on the redemption gospel, we all know what that would look like. It looks very different if you want to move, build it on the creation gospel. It will imply new skills, new capabilities, new modes of interaction. Now, broadly, this so what field we could call the field of public theology, and we'll say more about that. And that's been wonderful, and a, you know, it's a great new um, discovering, I think, of the gospel and its relevance to the world. But I think it is limited. I think this so what has gone mainly into the area of ethics. And that's limited. And I want to say why it's limited. Um, it's limited essentially because it maroons, it's still, it maroons us Christians as critics, critics of the system, not players in the system. 
And that will lead then to the new horizon, uh, which is the now what, which is, well, what's a better way of looking at our posture and role in this creation theology? And the answer to that will be, which I will only begin to open up in this talk because I'd say Rick's talks will take it further. Well, the, the now what is we are sub-creators and creators and designers of new uh, configurations and realities of situations in the created order that express the image of God. So with that as the overview, let me now move into the, the what. What does this phrase creation theology mean? In essence, it means that the gospel begins in Genesis 1 not in Genesis 3. Now, I didn't say the Bible begins in Genesis 1. We all know that. But the gospel story begins in Genesis 1. Uh, the, the traditional framing of the gospel that I grew up with as an evangel evangelical did not begin in Genesis 1. It began in Genesis 3 with the fall and with sin. So the actual drama and the plot begin there. The creation gospel doesn't begin with the fall. It begins with creation, the intention revealed in creation, and the paradoxes implicit in creation. So it goes right back to the very beginning of the story. Now, at face value, this will sound um, simple, uh, but it is, it is not simple. It hasn't been simple in my life. It's, a, in fact, a profound shift of paradigms. I like what Paul Ricoeur, the eminent philosopher of rhetoric, captured uh, about the beginning. What he said was this, the beginning is not what one finds first. The point of departure must be reached. It must be won. In other words, to find the beginning of, it, of anything is not to find the chronological first event, it is something far deeper, far more profound that one must work hard to uncover. He calls it the point of departure. So the beginning becomes a point of departure, i.e. the point of departure from which all thoughts flow. And it is hard won. Let me illustrate this in my life. Um, and, I, and, I, and I do this because I believe that the journey of life um, reveals um, very often just as much as bland docu uh, doctrinal generalizations would reveal. I've thought of different ways to explain this, but I think, I think the story is, is a good way. Um, This is the tough experience I went through as a, as, a, as a keen young evangelical Christian. I was obviously familiar with Genesis 1, but really I treated it as background. It was background setting for the real story. Um, when I went to Genesis 1 as a teenager at school or even early years at university, it was mainly to argue over evolution and whether the seven uh, days were literal days or, or not. 
it didn't feed my mind, it didn't preoccupy my thinking, it didn't frame my thoughts. What framed my thoughts was Genesis 3, and that indeed framed my, my whole theology. In other words, the gospel, the story, the drama begins in Genesis 3 with the fall, and that is the distinguishing point of view we take to the world, i.e. the lens of sin and fall. This is what makes the life of Jesus relevant. So fall and sin lead straight through to redemption and forgiveness of sins. On the, and, and what this does is it, it centralizes the cross as the, as the major mechanism for forgiveness. And um, this does take us into other areas that are more, I now realize are more controversial. It takes us into a certain view of the Trinity um, that is around um, penal substitution, where Jesus is the sacrifice to the Father. That, that, was, that was what framed the story. Um, then what happened was um, life, life intervened for me. And in my mid-30s, um, uh, something changed. I left teaching and started consulting. And this began uh, what I call my Joseph in Egypt experience. I now began working with people who were leaders, managers, uh, varying levels in the real world across a very broad spectrum of industries, the, the government, social sector, not-for-profit. And these people I found were doing heavy lifting with really um, grave issues, which generally speaking, they were doing their, their level best with and taking very seriously. Issues, for instance, um, complex, uh, the com how do you handle complexity in information and in particular in legislation? I was um, helping the Australian Tax Office uh, with what was called the Tax Law Simplification Project. This was the, the, the real issue underneath this was what's the nature of how you control human beings? Um, the tax office were taking a very broad view. They thought this boiled down to trust. This boiled down to your anthropology. Well, are people naturally bad or naturally good? Um, if you think they're naturally bad, it tends to lead to what was called black letter law, uh, where you specify everything. If you think people on the whole want to do the good thing, you'll probably go into principle-based or gray law where you don't write as much and you establish principles. And this was intriguing to me, absolutely intriguing. Um, with other, other clients, it was how do you change human behavior? How do you engage people in the front line? Um, how do you make work creative? How do you give people space in their work? Um, and that led on to an absolutely intriguing question of how do you balance the rights of the individual versus the collective? Because the collective always wants to control, whereas the individual um, tends to want to be independent. How do you balance these, these things? And, um, and then another one, um, the, the huge battle in organisations between uh, the management being essentially about controlling risk um, versus promoting innovation. And these things seem paradoxes. And there were the, the vast bulk of systems I saw were about risk control and caution versus um, giving people the license to fail and to learn and to innovate. Now, I haven't mentioned anything quote unquote religious in what I've just said, but any thinking person knows these are intriguing issues. 
The problem I had was that the framing of the redemption gospel that I've just given didn't shine any light at all on these issues. There was nothing intrinsic in that that shone a light on it. Uh, what it, The light it shone, insofar as it did shine a light, was ethical. Um, and that was about as far as it went. But these leaders were uh, rarely facing what, what I would call primarily ethical issues. They were facing rather what is called wicked problems, problems that threatened the order and intention in their business. And I, I can remember wondering, is the best we've got to offer as Christians a kind of auditing God? A God who teaches us to say that's right, that's wrong? Is that, is that the very best? Because that's a harping, minimalist, soulless voice. Why can't we offer a smarter God? Why can't we offer a wiser God? Why can't we offer a, back of my mind, had a Solomon-type God um, who can equip us and enlarge us to be uh, voices of bounty, voices of wisdom in, in the situation? Now, of course, both I and my clients were trying to be smart, were trying to be generous-minded, were trying to innovate, and it was happening. But it was happening, as it were, without a direct relevance to the gospel. Um, I'm cutting this story very short because what happened to me was that I, did, I actually didn't want to take my religion into this world because of those limitations. I, I didn't like it. I, I felt it was forced. I just wanted to be the best in the world at what I was doing. I was blessed with friends. Mark Strom was the first, but then there were others who began to work with me who were much more open to taking the gospel into that space. And in talking about this journey, I have to acknowledge them that what I'm talking about as an individual journey was in fact a journey with some colleagues who brought enormous richness to what I'm about to say. Um, but if I could summarize some of the uh, dangerous limitations of the redemption gospel that I was now confronting in my experience, uh, I, I'd summarize them as, as some of the main themes. I was quickly becoming aware of the inappropriateness of the Christian versus non-Christian demarcation. The experience I was having was I was becoming friends and colleagues with people who were not all Christians. Some were atheists, some were uh, Jewish believers, some were Catholics. At that time, I thought Catholics you know, weren't saved. Some were agnostics. Some were very private about their beliefs. But... Um, I was thrown into partnership with them and I deeply admired them. They were often exhibiting qualities of character like courage, enormous courage, um, selfless commitment to mission and service, and often in a way that I could actually... <laughs> didn't have to think very hard to find Christians who, who, who did not behave that way. Um, so... Um, the danger of this, the danger of the experience I was going through is the danger of irrelevance. In other words, 
once you go on this journey of going out into the world and getting a bigger world, you get confronted with a big choice. Either you throw away the gospel explicitly or implicitly um, as irrelevant, not good enough, or you find a bigger God and a bigger gospel. And, and blessedly, that's what happened to me. Um, helped a lot by the conversations I was having with my friends. I began to get a glimmer of hope about the bigger God and the bigger project because of a very strange thing, which was that I, around about this time was, and this was probably about five to 10 years, that period after I began consulting, I began to lead uh, pretty large scale workshops in strategic thinking where I was helping leaders to frame and shape change. And uh, that, in my old thinking, was not religious. But I had this palpable feeling that I was actually walking on holy ground while I was doing this. Couldn't explain it. Couldn't explain it. And furthermore, this feeling of a holy ground experience, helping people shape a new child support system, helping the, the blind societies of Australia do what they hadn't done in 100 years and come together and forge around a new vision, a, a joint, a joint uh, service delivery team, um, helping uh, the Indigenous community of Australia frame um, different ways of interacting with a, with, a, I, with a white community. I, I palpably felt it was Bethel. And I felt exactly like Jacob, surely God was in this place. And I did not know it. I didn't have the words to frame it. So what needed to happen was my theology had to catch up with, with the experience that I think the Holy Spirit was, was mediating for me. And I found this new theology in several ways. Um, conversations with friends were very important. Um, and I'd love to say more about that. Um, uh, I would say one thing about it, which was uh, particularly two of the key friends who, whom I was working with, David Jones and Mark Strom, had been to Westminster. Um, and at Westminster, they had had a very rich Trinitarian theology given them. Um, uh, and that that Trinitarian theology and um, the experience they had of a bigger eschatological gospel um, was hugely changing my mind and their mind. So, so I don't think if I was on my own, I would ever have got here. But Mark, I know, introduced me, for instance, to Ritterboss and his great work on Paul's theology. And Ritterboss is one of the preeminent theologians in the 20th century who moved away from a kind of individualistic conversion-based gospel to a vast cosmic, um, cosmic uh, redemption gospel um, framed around eschatology. So these very deep uh, discussions about the gospel at face value were, were, were just vastly removed from the experience I was having of facilitating leaders. But it was a deepening grasp of the gospel. 
And lo and behold, as you go deep, you begin to find God there and you find the connections at deep roots, which is what happened. So I'd summarise this by saying, I and we began to move back to Genesis 1. And not in a cosmetic way, but in a profound way. We felt like we're going back through the corridors of time to the beginning of all things. And here we found a deep story on the act of creation and creativity. And furthermore, the incredibly deep humanism, human-centric cosmic vision of man being made in the image of God and the role of humanity to further the creative act of God. Um, Now, I was and we were blessed by different readings at the time. For instance, I was inspired by a book on on creation by Michael Welker called Creation and Reality. Very um, abstract, profound, succinct book. And and yet I found when I read it, the the words were throbbing for me with, with, with explanation of what I was doing when I was helping these leaders in a sense, sub-create new systems. Welker, for instance, made two hugely relevant points that I can clearly remember. One, the act of creation in Genesis 1 is unfinished. It's not recorded as a tidy parcel where we're told, it's perfect, don't screw it up on me. That's not the voice of God. The voice of God is, it's unfinished. It's ragged at the edges, it's beginning, I've set the energies in place, now you take it forward. Um, that meant that the entire characterization of existence is to create and sub-create. It's not at the edges to fix problems. It's carrying forward the momentum of God's creative act. Second big point he made is that the, uh, is that the scope of creation and the object of creation in Genesis 1 it includes social systems, not just nature. I had been... As a, as a young evangelical, used to thanking God for a sunset or a sunrise, but not used to expecting to find God in delegation structures in an organisation. Uh, Welker just broke that right open by saying, in, in looking deeply at the text of Genesis 1 in the Hebrew, that the scope of creation is the social systems. Of course, it's obvious once you think about it. Um, we are inhabiting an, an entire world made by God, not just a natural world, but a thought world. And as far as we create social systems, we haven't invented them from scratch. We've inherited, um, we've inherited some of God's laws and principles and we're dealing with them. So the upshot is I began to read the whole gospel as beginning in Genesis 1, not in Genesis 3. And the... The real gospel, the drama, began with the creation of the cosmos, designing and shaping the created order. And that that act of creation in turn demanded a creator. And that meant peering into the nature of God. And this is where the Trinitarian models that, uh, uh, that I was blessed to receive from, uh, from Mark and David and that we talked about endlessly at this time when we were working on assignments together. I mean, we'd go out and do assignments in the mining industry and come back and 
talk about the normative, situational, existential, and the voice of intent, design, and experience, which is a Trinitarian model. We just couldn't, I, I, I just had this experience like in Psalm 130, God is everywhere. The fact I don't see him is my fault, not his. There's nowhere I can go from his presence. Nowhere I can go that he doesn't inform everything. And the, the depth of what we were seeing was, that, was the Trinitarian nature of God, where the word, the logos, is the agent of creation. And the transition between an inchoate intent and an objective reality. Um, of course, a drama needs a paradox, and, and we didn't throw away sin and Genesis 3, but we came to it via Genesis 1, and we began to look at it very differently. And the talk I gave a long time ago on lost office being a better metaphor than the fall is one example of that. Uh, but certainly there were others we began to see creation isn't just, I mean, the resistance to God's creation is not merely a resistance of evil, but a resistance of paradox. There's an implicit paradox in the Judeo-Christian view that an infinite, ineffable God will express himself in a finite, tangible order. That You don't need to bring sin into that to say, well, hang on, there's a contradiction here, and this is... Plato uh, solved that contradiction by dualism. We were beginning to see a synthesis between those two worlds of the infinite and the finite. How can the created order house the uncreated God? So, over time, what I noticed fairly quickly is I'm not the only one on this journey, of course. Um, one thing I've noticed even more of late is that if we ask the question, do the biblical authors themselves, I mean the authors subsequent to Moses, what lens do they use to interpret the experiences that they've been giving, given? And I found they did, they're exactly on my journey. As an example, uh, I'm recently memorizing uh, the, the opening, the first chapter of the first epistle of John. John has spent ages contemplating the action of the dying and rising of Christ. How does he interpret it? How does he unpack it? What's the lens he looks at it through? He does not look at it through Genesis 3. He doesn't talk about the fall. He doesn't talk about the serpent. He doesn't talk about Adam and Eve. He talks about creation. His opening words are, that which was from the beginning. Um, clearly, his mind was viewing this as the new creation. And it was the Genesis 1 creation that was framing his interpretation. In summary, um, to conclude this package of comparison, what I would say is that, unfortunately, the redemption gospel has a cartload and a freight load of worldviews packed in behind it. And I think the, uh, uh, some of them are perhaps they're unintended consequences. I certainly had them, and I think they're dangerous. First, the first one is the there is a low anthropology, implicit and often explicit, in the redemption theology. You just got to read Calvin to get this. I mean, Calvin tries to talk about Genesis 1, 27, and every time he does, only gets a sentence or two, and he's back off into total depravity. So unfortunately, the Christian message has got framed 
explicitly, implicitly, and in the mind, the message given out to the world is you're black, you're dark, you're sinful, you can't do a single thing to save yourself. And humanism is seen as a, as a, as a, a dark thing. Now, um, the creation theology does not begin with that declaration. It begins with a completely different declaration. Uh, in fact, a radical humanism, which we've talked about quite a lot in gospel conversations, you are made in the image of God. The second implication is that the scope of activity is very different. The redemption, um, redemption gospel has what I would call a religious scope. Um, I think it tends more often than not to be framed inside a platonic dualism where heaven and hell are the coordinates that we're choosing between. Um, and therefore, our activities have a narrow, specialised frame to them. You know, saving souls, prayer, and other pious acts. It's a, it's a, it's, I package that with the word religious. The creation gospel is religionless. It actually has a cosmic scope. It doesn't acknowledge any differentiation between um, religious piety and. Um, action and activity that's holy in the world. It, it actually is it establishes a continuity, a vast continuity in the created order. You know, it, it becomes unthinkable that we, the created, could ever go to heaven, which is the, the home of the uncreated. No, 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 Create, the created order has begun and will continue because we will be created and we will forever be created. So I start to establish a continuity between the orders of um, my life now and my and the future, I am actually seeing um, I'm seeing a straight line, and, and and this straight line means that the the activities I'm doing today become well seeds I'm sowing for the future. There, there, there's going to be a continuity uh, between this life and the coming life. Um, I think as well as that, the um, redemption gospel um, has tended to create a posture, a way of being in the world that we could call private and internal. You know, it's, it's, it's the work of the Holy Spirit within me. Um, and there's this bifurcation between that and my public life. The creation gospel busts that wide open and it says the public private interact with each other because the whole cosmos is God's area of interest. It's politics and it's systems. And finally, I think really importantly, the nature of the redemptive act. The redemption theology gospel focuses upon the forgiveness of sins and the cross as the mechanism by which that atonement is created. The creation gospel focuses on the dying and rising of Jesus as a connected redemptive mechanism where the resurrection now moves to being part of the new creation and part of the redemptive mechanisms. So that's a, a major part of the talk really, which is what do we mean by the creation gospel? What about the relevance of it. Why, why is today particularly the time and place for a creation gospel? 
Well, I think it's it's really uh, it's really like a Mars Hill experience where um, uh, when, when Paul talked to the Greeks, the the creation gospel includes everybody. You actually begin with what we've already got. You don't begin with what you haven't got. You begin the story with what we've all got. Um, and it it begins there and then it stretches it. It renames that as the gift of God. And so it begins with what people already know and then it declares it is sacred and begins to move them, as Paul did in Acts 17 onward. Now, this can feel soft. It can feel like, ah, oh, you're just giving up on all the hard-edged stuff. You don't want to tell people the bad news. They're sinners um, and so on. Mm, no, I don't think so. In today's world, this creation gospel has got enormous edge. It is contested. It is a contested space. And it definitely confronts today's, today's um, doubts and today's kind of antichrist movements. And um, here's how it does, here's how it does. And I'm now imagining how one would take this message out to the world, so I think it changes the order of evangelism. It begins with background. And really, you're, begin you're saying, uh, we Christians have a different set of background assumptions um, to the world at large, about which we are not ashamed. Firstly, I would say today, the dominant mood in the world, and it's just going to get worse with the coronavirus thing and others, is nihilism. I think we're in a world that is dark and has no hope. A lot of Christians think it's secularism. No, no, I think underneath it, it's something worse. It's nihilism leading to collective depression. Against nihilism, we have a radical message that can feel illogical, which is hope. Hope frames the world. And the creation gospel tells us that. Um, secondly, uh, we live in a world characterized by material, the, the, the scientific worldview is a materialistic worldview. It's just nuts and bolts. Everything is, is, can be explained by the laws of physics. And of course, Ron's talks have been wonderful in deconstructing this and critiquing it from a scientific point of view. But nonetheless, we are people who don't believe that. We can go out to the world saying, we believe, yes, we believe in mechanics. Yes, we believe in senses. Yes, we believe in matter. But we believe in mystery as well. We believe that you cannot understand any system, including a physical system, without understanding love and intent. That's what we believe. Um, and you know, part of that is that we believe in, in, we have a very different anthropology. There is a, con, a real contest, real debate going on in the world today about what is it to be a human being? Are we just the same as animals? No different? That's what evolution seems to imply. Probably just the same as rocks. We say, well, no, we believe that is wrong. We believe that there's a specific creation of humanity and we are created in the image of God, which means we've got a soul. So. These are things that are real messages of hope, but they're debatable, they're contestable. And I've found you know, there's different ways of telling those stories, but people are up for that. They, they, they're interested in that. These, are, these don't sound like religious things. These sounds like the nature of reality, the nature of the past, and 
the nature of hope, they're very relevant topics. You could say, well, how do we bring Christ into it? And I've been thinking about that quite a lot because um, I've got a lot of people who are warmly, I think, receiving the background message, but how do we move to the Christ message? Well, I think that's extremely relevant because uh, we, 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 we move to Christ as the incarnation, as the ultimate human being. And we, we say that our faith actually declares that a man, a human being, had to be the agent for transformation. I, I don't want to go further on, the, on, the, on why it's relevant today um, because that, you know, I think it would just unbalance the talk, but it is, suffice it to say, I think the creation gospel and, and, and is really um, relevant for today. It's got edge, but it's got attraction and we need to get better at telling that story. And I think as a result, it's very important for young, young people who are Christians to get this creation gospel in their heads to continue to build their faith. Uh, 